I'm Grant Oliphant, and this is We Can Be. As we were recording episodes for the Season 3 launch of We Can Be, the world changed in ways that we couldn't have imagined. And we held on to those earlier recorded episodes as we pivoted to bring you a special series focused on COVID-19. As we now share those first episodes of Season 3, we think you'll agree that the work of this week's guest has taken on even more significance now. In a world where COVID-19 risk is disproportionately higher for non-Caucasian individuals, and where white privilege is finally being widely discussed, and where the role of philanthropy is being more closely examined than ever before, the work of Edgar Villanueva is especially crucial at this moment. This is my conversation with Edgar Villanueva. Colonization, the act of settling among and establishing control over the indigenous people of an area, is how the United States was founded. But it is not one moment frozen in time, as its consequences reverberate through centuries. As our guest today says, colonization isn't something that happened 500 years ago. It's happening right now. Edgar Villanueva is a member of the Lumbee Indian Tribe of North Carolina and the author of Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. He is the Senior Vice President of the Schott Foundation for Public Education in New York City and the Chair of the Board of Directors for Native Americans in Philanthropy, which advocates for equity in representation and funding for Native Americans. He is a firm believer in the concept of listening in color, and we'll cover that, as well as the very personal reasons why this work means so much to him. Edgar Villanueva, so nice to see you, and thank you for being here. Thank you. It's an honor. You've had a busy year. You've written what feels like a seminal book in philanthropy, important to our field, but also important culturally. And I think what might be important is to begin by talking about your identity and how it's formed you. Sure. So I hail from the great state of North Carolina. I am an enrolled member of the Lumbee tribe, which is a tribe in southeastern North Carolina with about 60,000 members. We're the largest tribe east of the Mississippi River. And as a young boy, my mother and I moved to the big city of Raleigh, North Carolina, so that I would have access to better public schools. And I grew up in her shadow of being a person who was very service-oriented, both as her profession as a domestic worker, but also as a person who was very involved in community through our church, because I was so inspired by her. And I often say that she was the first philanthropist that I knew. She had this unconditional love for humanity. And that's what philanthropy actually means, is love of people, love of mankind. And one story that I share in the book that's just a brilliant example of the generosity of my mother is that she was very passionate about little kids. And every Saturday growing up, we would go out into the public housing units in our community. We call it knocking doors back then, (laughs) knocking on doors, inviting kids uh, to come to our church. My mom said, basically, you know, we have this bus that comes through. We will love to pick you up. And if you have kids here, we'll bring them to Sunday school and we'll bring them back. You know, over time, my mom was busing in like 300 kids to our church, like a fleet of buses because it just grew. And even now when I go back to North Carolina, 
we'll be in a store and, and somebody will say, um, Sheila, is that you? Oh, my God. And it's an adult <laughs> that comes up and just remembers the impact that my mom had on them when they were kids and just hugging on them and loving yeah. them and just, you know, bringing them to church and taking them back home and see you next week, providing some type of regular interaction of, of love right. for those children. And let's talk a little bit about how you end up in philanthropy. And you've written this book as a very, I think, important critique of of the world of philanthropy. But first, you have to be attracted to it to go inside and be able to pull it apart. What drew you there in the first place? Was it this tradition of service? I think that was definitely the foundation. When I was finishing up grad school, I was working at a national nonprofit, and I got recruited by a health foundation in North Carolina. And I had also been recruited by lots of other types of organizations, a lot of hospital systems and consulting firms. And I was honestly at first attracted to some of those organizations because they were in big cities, they paid well. I had been in the nonprofit sector for a long time and I had student debt. And Mm -hmm. so my mind was beginning to sort of shift and be oriented to a different type of work. Although when I was interviewing at those different consulting firms and healthcare systems, like something felt off. I remember thinking like, I can't go to work every day just trying to figure out how to increase the bottom line of a healthcare system. Mm-hmm. That just feels like, right. a, like a, such that a That wasn't str- your calling. It wasn't my calling. Such a strange job. <laughs> so when I got this call to interview at the Cape B. Reynolds Charitable Trust in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, had never heard of them. I didn't. I'm like, trust. What is that? You know. Right. <laughs> and I had a professor in the school of public health who said, "You have to go. You have to go. This is a big opportunity." So I, you know, I went to Winston Salem, which was a small city. So many things were not kind of in my mind for what I wanted for myself at the time. But I, through a series of conversations, really began to connect deeply with the mission. The mission was to move resources to improve the health of low-income folks in North Carolina and low-income communities. I felt in my heart that this was the right move for me. I kind of jumped in. I said, you know, I think this is, this is where I'm supposed to be. Now, you've written and spoken extensively about the fact that you found that the worlds of finance and philanthropy, big foundations in particular, are in many ways not welcoming to people of color or even hostile to people of color. Can you talk a little bit about that phenomenon that you experienced and how you experienced it? You know, the particular foundation where I was working had a corporate trustee, which was a bank. So we had very much a banking culture. And I began to have messages kind of explicitly and some not so explicit sent to me around how I needed to show up, around how we I dressed, the kind of car that I drove. We talked a lot about optics, like the optics of everything that we, we did. And the optics were very focused on maintaining sort of this idea or this legacy of wealth that, that the Reynolds family held up in Winston-Salem. They wanted a show of wealth. Yeah, I had a Honda Civic. I had just graduated from grad school, and I loved my Honda Civic. It's a totally appropriate car. (laughs) Now, it had been wrecked on all four sides, (laughs) to be fair, but it also had been completely rebuilt, and it looked like a new car. You know, messages around like, ah, you know, you really should get a new car, and we don't want people to think that we don't pay our employees well and, and things like that. As I was in the field longer and beginning to connect with other people of color, I found that 
other folks receive the same types of messages. Mm-hmm. And I remember a, a woman, a Native woman who worked at a very large um, national foundation, told me that she was asked not to wear her jewelry to work anymore. Like it was making people feel uncomfortable. Now, she wasn't coming into the foundation with a headdress on and all of that. I right. mean, just like very simple right, <laughs> you right. Know, pieces. There is this culture in the finance sector, I would say, that's uh, very much about assimilation. Mm-hmm. If you go to Wall Street and look around, everyone has the same suit on. You know, it's kind right. of like right. I was always kind of made to feel a little bit otherwise. You have spoken and talked and written about the fact that you, when you sat down to write the book, we're writing from a place of anger. I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about how you became angry, how this set of realizations turned to anger in you. I think that the frustrations that I was experiencing in philanthropy began to just layer on each other earlier in my career when I tried to bring new ideas or new ways of thinking about the work or even moving money to communities that we had not funded in the past. Um, There was always resistance to that, Mm. and it just felt like new ideas were not welcomed. And there was the constant message that I received, too, that I was very replaceable. You know, like, Mm. it's a privilege to work here, Mm. and the day that you don't want to follow these rules, there's a million people who would be willing to take your place. And so that type of mindset, I began to sort of stifle my ideas and hold back and keep my head down just to do the job. You know, and I know that's a sentiment that's shared by a lot of folks in philanthropy that come from marginalized communities. Uh, There's a report that the Association of Black Foundation Executives put out a number of years ago called the Exit Interview. And they interviewed black professionals about why they left the field. And when I read that, I was like, yes, this is how I feel all the time. I just began to sort of internalize this and and felt frustrated that this was an industry that was about charity, about doing good. And we had so much privilege and opportunity to do that. And so why did it seem so difficult? We as a sector are not allowing us to bring our best best selves to work, right? We can do better and we should do better. And so, yeah, I was a little And especially in a field that claims to be doing right right (laughs) yeah yeah. i want to talk about why this matters you actually talk extensively in the book about about uh money as medicine and the power of money to do both bad and good why should people who aren't in what they think of as philanthropy who are maybe in the finance world or who are who are working in some other profession why should they care about this what i've come to understand over the past year, year and a half, where I have spoken at more than 130 events all around the world and engaged with tens of thousands of people, is that there's a message in the book that is so much more important than just good philanthropic practice. Mm. It's, It's about being a good human being and understanding how we all need to show up and care for each other and care for this planet. There's a history lesson in the book about colonization and a little bit of a truth and reconciliation and a path to getting to that, which I think is ultimately for us as a country in the United States, a process that I think we desperately need to have. Our country is torn apart, so polarized, identity politics, racism is running rampant in ways that I I never imagined I would see like publicly. We are the only country that is quote unquote a civilized country, as they say, that has not had a process of truth and reconciliation Mm -hmm. to really understand 
the impacts of the original sin of slavery, to really understand the dynamics of colonization and genocide and all these things that happen. And so this book for me is is more than about philanthropy. It's about truth and reconciliation. It's about healing. It's about understanding trauma that is inherent in every single one of us. Whether you're indigenous, a person of color, or white um, family, there is trauma that we all have inherited, and we might be experiencing that trauma in different ways, and we need to very much think about collective healing in this country. And until we do that, I just don't think we're going to see the changes come about that we really want to see and experience. And that's something, you know, as an indigenous person, I'll say we talk about trauma and healing a lot in our communities. And it's something that I didn't even realize before writing this book that I really need it for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of felt like I'm okay. I made it out of poverty, doing all right. My family's okay. We're good. Let's just kind of keep moving right, forward, right? Right, right, right. But as I began to sort of ask the hard questions and really peel things back, I came to really understand that in my own family, there's so much trauma that we haven't talked about mm-hmm. that we continue to just kind of move forward and let that bubble under the surface and every now and then it just like rears its head. There's been, you know, abuse, violence, incarceration, this, you know, all of the the symptoms of the cycle of poverty. I've had my aunt get out of prison and just she's just there the next holiday and it's like we, we, we don't really have a conversation around well what happened and what supports might she need wow. here. So we no discussion just kind of like keep keep moving forward right. and uh, you know my family's probably no different from a lot of families where we get to, we love each other with lots of laughter and joking around but really talking about those painful things and how we need to like rally around you know when there is a traumatic incident to support each other the best way for us to come together and have balance again and to be in good relationship with each other is like put all this stuff on the table once and for all let's like grapple with it and speak truth and let everyone feel heard and in that I think we, we will all find our liberation and a path to healing you might have a second career as a therapist. <laughs> you know, I think about the context of the times that we're in. I never imagined that I'd witness the display of naked racism that we're seeing now, the embrace of it by people in not just the president, but people across public life. But there are people who, in the context of that, say, hey, what we have to do is get past all of this identity stuff. And yet you went directly at identity. And in a way you said the antidote to this white supremacy that we're seeing emerge, and and that's sort of built into the system that I'm criticizing, is also identity. Can you talk a little bit about how you arrived at that conclusion? I specifically name white supremacy because... When we think of racism, you know, it it doesn't identify who benefits from the system. And so when we actually say white supremacy, it's just a little bit more specific. When I think and talk about white supremacy, I don't necessarily mean white people. White supremacy is an ideology that is not real. It's something that someone made up, right? And it's an ideology that we've all internalized, myself included. You know, in my own family growing up, there were messages that were basically taught to me that I needed to assimilate more to the white side of the classroom than to the black side because I would fare better if I did that, right? So we have all internalized ideology that white is better, white is the expert. 
when we talk about dismantling white supremacy, decolonization is another way to think about it. It's literally the unlearning of all of these messages, right? And getting back to understanding that we are all related. And the idea of all my relations is a, an indigenous value that's shared pretty universally that literally means that we are related. We are relatives and we are connected to each other. Our interdependence is inescapable. We are also connected to the earth and to every living thing. And it's a value that uh, when you really absorb that mindset and that worldview, you can see how it would change the nature of relationships and how we make decisions, right? And so I think that's where, you know, some folks who don't want to name identity are probably like, well, we need to move beyond that so we can be a post-racial society. I support that, and I support the idea that race is not a real thing, right? However, we live within a system where policies and systems were built around this notion of race. Public policies for, for decades have been created to privilege white folks. And so in the dismantling of white supremacy and in the changing of public policies and in the creation of strategies, philanthropic strategies and otherwise, we have to actually center race in those solutions mm-hmm. in order to decolonize or to dismantle white supremacy that's been baked in. This gets us finally to the core of your book, which is about the legacy of colonization and the imperative to decolonize our society. Were you surprised as you began researching your book just how deep the roots of that colonial mentality went in our culture? Yeah, I was surprised. I think being Native American in North Carolina on the East Coast, we were the very first point of contact for uh, European settlers on this land. And so we've been exposed to whiteness for a long time, you know, and at the same time, I'm on this journey kind of like back to my original teachings and I'm kind of learning the history and really understanding what colonization was all about. Because, you know, I was taught the same classes as you all where we actually are taught that colonizers are are heroes, right? Mm 500 years ago, a map maker named Christopher Columbus had an idea. I will discover a shortcut to India and bring back some of the great wealth I find there. The ships reached land and Columbus and his crew saw the people with reddish brown skins who lived there. We'll call this part of India San Salvador and I take possession of it in the name of the King and Queen of Spain. Columbus made two more voyages and other explorers followed. But each year on October 12th, we celebrate Columbus Day, the anniversary of that day in 1492, when Columbus first sighted the land of the new world, America. So this mindset actually of going to another place and conquering and and taking over and kind of putting your name on it is something that for hundreds and hundreds of years has been sort of the, the way of the world and the way that wealth has been accumulated, you know, and again, we've all internalized it. And for, for me to be native and trying to hold on to the identity, it's a daily practice of, of trying to peel back some of the, the ways of being and thinking in the mm-hmm. world. Uh, but yeah, it runs very, very deep. When did you first realize it as a person? And when did you first realize that it was endemic in philanthropy? 
as a person, I probably begin to understand it a bit more as I begin doing more work in indigenous communities mm -hmm. to see across this country, you know, one of the richest countries in the world, the extreme poverty that some indigenous communities were living in and what had been taken away and the narratives that we were pushing back on, like the erasure of history, the erasure of language, but also the mindset that these folks were not capable or not having the capacity to care for themselves or to be sovereign. And I think personally for me, where I got super politicized was during Standing Rock. Moving now to this tense situation playing out in North Dakota. Authorities there clashing with demonstrators who've set up camp on private land to protest the construction of a controversial pipeline. This land belongs to the earth. We are only caretakers. We're caretakers of the earth. People have gone through the fence, men, women, and children. They are not leaving! We are not leaving! We are not leaving! all the stories and history that I know, to actually see video footage of an indigenous community being attacked from the same water they're trying to protect, being sprayed with the water, having dogs unleashed on them. I had friends and people who were there on site. That's where I began to see that colonization is not just something from 500 years ago, but the acts of colonization are still very much at play today. I think the translation into the financial sector, into philanthropy, into broader systems is understanding that there is this force at play. I call it the colonizing virus. Yeah. That's about extraction, separating, dividing. I begin to just sort of think about those dynamics and I see them at play everywhere around me now. You know, our public education system reflects the colonizer virus our food systems, our um, immigration policy, we're still very much creating policies and systems and ways of being in this country that separate the haves from the have-nots. We're putting kids in cages as we speak right now and tear them away from families. Right, right, so those right. tactics have always been strategies yeah, we, of colonization. We, we can't think of this as history. Right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit more about Standing Rock because it clearly has, has been formative in your thinking. And and I think for many of us, it was a moment that has shaped how we we view power mm -hmm. uh, and the abuse of power uh, in and and of wealth in in this country. Uh, but you've spoken about the importance of Standing Rock and the Dakota Access Pipeline protests and bringing Native American people and issues to an international audience. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, in particular to Standing Rock, it sort of put Native Americans on the map in a big way. Like, yeah. for, for the first time in, in philanthropy, foundations were just calling me left and right, wanting to move money. A lot of resources were deployed. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful, sacred place, actually, where hundreds of tribes came together in solidarity in ways that have never happened in U.S. history. Faith communities you know, convened at Standing Rock and, and denounced the Doctrine of Discovery. So there was so much going on around Standing Rock that was like like crazy. It was one of the first times for me where I really saw indigenous power and the power of organizing and the power of organizing in our way that also um, incorporates spirituality because Standing Rock was a prayer site. And from that moment, our communities have really been organized and have been really smart and strategic with all types of campaigns that I think contributed to Native women being elected to Congress. Mm. Some really smart organizing is happening. 
you know, as the chair of the Board of Native Americans Philanthropy, you know, when we know that less than 1% of philanthropic resources go to Native communities, there are so many amazing Native organizations. Often people say, well, I don't, I don't know any Native organizations, or I fund education, so I don't fund Native or issues. Right. Whatever you find, there are Native groups who do that thing. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And we could definitely direct you to Native organizations in your community or, or nationally that are doing work. And I think, you know, there's a something I say in the book is that we who have been marginalized or we who have been historically kind of redlined hold so much insight to solutions that we need in our communities and um, are so worthy of investment. And I think more and more now with what's happening around even the world outside of the U.S., people are turning to indigenous folks for ideas and for answers and are seeing us as the original innovators that we are. And so it's just a wonderful time to be indigenous. I'm so mm-hmm. like proud of what's happening around around the world. And it's time for philanthropy, you know, to, to kind of step up and, and get serious about moving investment and into these communities in a way that's respectful um, and does not sort of perpetuate those colonial dynamics. Right. What you just said reminded me of something in the end of the book. This was a story that you heard from Donna, who you refer to as your philanthropy mother. And it's a, an account she shared of being with a Native American elder who uh, said something that surprised her, which was that Europeans coming to this land was not a problem. The problem was they forgot their teachings. Do you agree with that? What teachings have we forgotten in this society and culture, which is a product of colonization that we should have held on to? The original teachings I talk about in Native communities are really sort of those teachings and values that have been passed down to us for generation to generation. And what I say to white folks is that they also have original teachings. You know, America is a very young country Mm -hmm. in many ways. As folks have immigrated or come to the U.S., we have such a strong identity as of being American. We're very proud to be American. We often forget that we're other things and that it's okay to be other things. Often folks have forgotten where they come from, and that's one of my first asks for people to do the work to understand where you came from and what your original teachings were. And often when people begin to look back on where they came from and how people lived, you'll find that there were often customs and traditions and ways of being that were very similar to to Native ways, right? Seeing each other as relatives knowing that our our suffering is mutual, our thriving is mutual, taking care of the land, making sure that everybody had enough, right? So it wasn't a, you know, you versus me type of mindset. I think that the answer for us to have a a future where we all can thrive is actually, it starts by looking back in history and understanding that. I think it's it's such a profound point. I mean, when you you think about it applied to philanthropy, though, you know, a lot of people in, in this culture would say, but Edgar, you know, Okay, I get the criticism around colonization, the colonizer virus, but philanthropy is a good thing. It's where people are being generous. It's where we're giving away something. And why is that a manifestation of this negative thing you're talking about? Philanthropy is a great thing. I still work in philanthropy. I love this sector. And I think that all giving is inherently good. But what I've been talking about in this work is really understanding how if we really want to achieve equity as a sector, we have got to privilege communities that have been harmed the most by our history and by systemic racism. And we have to understand that as a sector, when we look at the $60 billion 
of grants that are, are moved each year in the United States, only seven and a half to eight percent of that funding goes to communities of color. When we begin to like unpack and ask questions about why, where did this wealth come from, who gets to allocate, manage, and spend it, who's benefiting from the resources, we see that we have a major race problem. Mm-hmm. As philanthropic organizations, our financial institutions, our local governments, any organization that has resources where we're making decisions about where resources should go, we need to actually go through a process of understanding what is the racial justice lens that we're bringing to decisions that we're making around those resources. How might we actually be harming communities? Mm -hmm. If we are redlining communities with our funding, if we are forcing assimilation, if we are not lifting up those who have been impacted by these systems as experts, right? then, you know, we are actually sort of perpetuating the divide between the haves and the have-nots. One of the things that I think philanthropy has historically been guilty of is uh, infantilizing the populations that it claims to be trying to help. You actually describe an antidote to this in your book, where you counsel people to listen in color. What does it mean to listen in color? It's so interesting. In my 15 years of being a grant maker, the number one thing I hear from nonprofits is that they wish funders would listen, mm-hmm. which is so basic in a way, right? right. It's like, right. why are we such terrible listeners? <laughs> <laughs> our privilege and our proximity to power and resources just really blind us to being able to listen and in a real way and in a way that actually creates relationship with community. Listening in color to me is a superpower that entails actually being in relationship with um, an organization or a person and, and listening in a way that suspends our own judgment, our own going in with our own theories of changes and logic models in our heads, but actually listening to fully understand and listening with the opportunity to change our mind. One of the reasons that I think we're not as good at listening as we would like to believe we are is because when you listen, pain comes up and you don't know what to do with somebody else's pain. I'd just like you to talk for a moment about why it's important to acknowledge the pain that comes up and and how people can handle it without uh, just vaporizing from it. Well, I think part of that is when we see the pain or hear the pain in other folks, it brings up our own pain that we haven't dealt with. Mm. So I think part of it is that we who are doing this work, who are, you know, the healers, the the helpers, we have to do um, quite a bit of work on ourselves in order to be in a position to be able to minister to other people. The more that we're vulnerable about our, what, what we experience, we're going to be in a, a much better position to show compassion and empathy. You know, I think a lot of people in pain often want to be heard, and I think that part of sort of white dominant culture characteristics are to to have an immediate response or a solution. Um, But sometimes people just really want to be heard, and that's why these processes of truth and reconciliation are so important, right? Yes, after listening, we need to move on to do other things, but just actually fully being heard and saying, I'm sorry, I understand, and, you know, um, this is terrible, actually is a major part of the healing process. As you've thought about this process, one of the things that you think is very important for philanthropy generally and for society is to get back in touch with deeper values. What leaps out at you as you think about it sitting here? What are the values that you wish the rest of us would pay attention to? 
in, in short, is this idea of seven generations, which simply means that I am the product of seven generations of ancestors before me. I'm holding trauma and experiences and all of their decisions in my body. Um, I didn't just show up as this isolated person that's mm-hmm. not connected to a history, but I also am an ancestor for seven generations to come. So all of the decisions that I make today, how I show up in my leadership, are going to have implications for seven generations to come. Mm. And I think if we had that long-term view of life and impact, it would really change the you know the way we make some decisions at work, but also in our personal lives. Um, and for us to just think about how we can do better um, and do right by communities of color. Well, and I think that's underscored by your use of the of the language around medicine. I mean, mm-hmm. It's clear that you think of, of this as having a healing potential, but that it could do better. Absolutely. Yeah. Foundations are only required by Congress to pay out a minimum of 5% of their assets. That 95% is then invested mostly with the intention of earning more money. And so they are the majority of foundational resources, which is about $800 billion in this country, um, are invested in industries that harm and extract from communities. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is the actual net value of philanthropy? One of the ways in which it could do better that you that you talk about in the book is the contradiction of how we invest money versus the things we try to do through the giving of the money. Talk a little bit more about what you think is the contradiction there. When I saw research come out that the majority of philanthropic investments, the you know from endowments, were actually invested in industries that. Um, are harmful, you know, foundations that are making grants for criminal justice reform are invested in private prisons, foundations that are making grants for climate change are invested in like fossil fuels. So ultimately, I just want things to make sense. And I want to see change in the world. And so I'm scratching my head, like, how is it that this is happening? And like, what is the net value of philanthropy? If this is really happening, that like more than 80% of foundation investments are in like these these harmful types of investments you know i heard one person describe foundation work as like doing good as a side hustle or you know oh, or, wow. or being yeah, like not heard that you, know, <laughs> you know we're doing good with our yeah, right hand or our yeah. left hand um and, and my, my best analogy well one of my favorites that i saw recently in a cartoon was if bruce wayne was a little bit more responsible then we would need a little bit less batman you know right right <laughs> right but I think That's it's, funny. you know, we have an imperative to, you know, these, this is charitable capital that would have gone in, you know, into the tax system, into the public system, into our democratic process to pay for the safety net and for services, schools, all those things. So the idea that, you know, wealthy elite institutions get to call the shots on that money and most of that $900 billion is not actually being invested in community is, is something that I think is a question that we have to put on the table to, to really grapple with. Right. Edgar, the name of this program is We Can Be, which is kind of an incomplete sentence. Uh, I'd love for you to, to conclude by completing that sentence for us. We can be the generation that makes these changes. To the young, the old, the living, and the dead. To our brothers and sisters and all living things across Mother Earth and her beauty we've destroyed and denied the honor that the Creator has given each individual. The truth that lies in our hearts, all my relations.
Edgar spoke about all my relations, the concept that all of us are related to each other and to the planet. He also acknowledges that sometimes keeping true to this Native American concept of identity and family is not easy, and in fact, can be downright difficult. But Edgar is also clear that doesn't mean we shouldn't try, and that acknowledging past mistakes and offering apologies backed with action is a good first step. When we spoke with civil rights activist DeRay McKesson for this podcast, he talked about the inspiration superheroes, specifically the X-Men, gave to him as he was growing up. Edgar also talked about superpowers, calling out the importance of the superpower of listening in color. This concept of putting judgments and conclusions aside and listening through the space of the other person or group's lived experience is one superpower that we all have access to. It comes with responsibility, but also with great promise. Together, let's accept that challenge.